Welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy and me, Alex Sokolow. Bridget is away uh, this week, um, taking care of some personal things or solving some other things. I don't know exactly what, but she's not here. But uh, I am here, and uh, today uh, I'm really, really excited to uh, talk with our guest, uh, Talia Carner. I hope I'm pronouncing Yes, your name Talia. right, Talia, Talia. Uh, who uh, has worn many hats in her her life, uh, both uh, as as an educator, as an activist, as a um, a fighter for uh, global human rights and and specifically for women's rights around the world, and and then most recently in her uh, life, uh, a a novelist uh, five times over. Her latest novel. Um, the third daughter came out this last September, uh, by released by Harper Collins. We're going to talk about all of that. Uh, that book, uh, has to do with a young woman in the late 1800s who was, uh, thought that she, uh, had a ticket out of Eastern Europe and the pogrom driven, uh, uh, life and reality, which I, I can relate to my, I'm Ashkenazi, so I know that story a little bit myself. Uh, and the woman thought that she was uh, going to have uh, a chance to get to America and instead got pulled into uh, sex trafficking in uh, Buenos Aires. Uh, so a lot of stuff to talk about. We also, Talia is a, uh, a resident and a, uh, I think a long time uh, participant of life on the East End, uh, which is what we try and fold all of our storytelling here into is what's going on in the East End, uh, cool people doing cool things. I just would like to start talking about the East End. Um, I want to tell a story and talk about an incident. I, I want to be as non non-judgmental, uh, nor cast any, put any uh, uh, gasoline on anything. Uh, but something happened this week, and uh, it happened to my son uh, involving the Southampton police. Um, and... Uh, an incident that was not an incident, and and I'm talking about it uh, more because it's left me really a little bit flabbergasted about how things can escalate into potential tragedy. Um, my son, uh, Elijah, is uh, 20 years old, a musician. He lives in Brooklyn. Uh, he just recently bought a car that he's going to use to tour with his band, and he keeps the car out at my house in Bridgehampton. And he was coming out on Wednesday night uh, to pick up his car. Uh, he took the Jitney out. The Jitney uh, had a problem, so he couldn't get all the way to Bridgehampton, and he got out at the Southampton station. As everybody knows, a bad weather was coming in on Thursday and Wednesday night, and so he was carrying an umbrella and not one of the short kind of uh, umbrellas that we can fit in a pocket or a bag, but a longer umbrella. And I should also mention my son's a musician, uh, he's 20 years old and he has pink hair. 
I don't know if that matters or not, but I will just say he calls me says and says, Dad, can you come get me? I do not have a ride into Bridgehampton. And I uh, start driving to the Southampton Jitney stop. And then uh, he calls me again uh, as I'm, I'm approaching, completely spooked. And the following thing happened. Uh, he's waiting outside. He has headphones on and he's holding his umbrella. Uh, somebody on the inside of the Jitney stop thought that the umbrella was a rifle and uh, called 911. 911 said, are you sure it's a rifle? And the person said, yes, I'm sure. And then this is my son's relaying the information to me. He is listening to music and uh, has his head down and he looks up and there are four police cars and 10 policemen with guns pointed at him, screaming at him, uh, different varying things. Get down on the ground, move over there. You're going to get shot. He had no idea what was going on. Uh, thank God my son did not conflate the situation. He was compliant, uh, was cuffed and put on the ground. And uh, then the police, uh, who evidently were communicating, the, the lead policeman was communicating with him, saying, you're not under arrest, but we have to make sure you don't have a weapon, uh, ascertained that he was, in fact, only carrying an umbrella. And uh, then they searched him. Then they uncuffed them, and then they all left. And by the time I got there, they were all leaving. Uh, this all happened in about five or 10 minutes. And I mention it uh, not to nitpick or not to point fingers, but just to say there were so many things that went into this incident that was not an incident. The fact that my son was carrying an umbrella, the fact that he shows up at the Jitney uh, station but doesn't have any luggage, which evidently was a thing that triggered somebody inside saying, who is this loner? with pink hair and this kind of rifle-like appendage. And then when the police came, uh, the fact that they were kind of coming in, answering a call where they had to uh, suspect the worst. Uh, thank God nobody was hurt. And, and again, it's hard also not to say we're Caucasian, we're white, uh, he's white, and that uh, it's hard not to think what would have happened if he was a person of color. Uh, so I'm, I'm sharing this. Uh, Perhaps it ties into our bigger conversation uh, with regards to justice and how somebody can get pulled into something way past their uh, abilities or expertise and things can conflate into tragedy. Um, or if people keep their head about them and ultimately everybody uh, does their you know, does their job properly, it, it becomes like a non-incident incident. Uh, anyway, I wanted to share that. Uh, we'll say, uh, you know, mad respect for the police. I know that they do all the tough work, but also I, I will say on top of that, uh, when, when somebody is yelling at you, you're going to get shot and all you're doing is carrying an umbrella, that's, that's, that's kind of fuel on the fire right there. So um, anyhow... Pivoting to Talia, uh, you know, when we come back, we'll, we'll bring Talia on. We'll talk about her amazing journey and uh, also uh, issues of justice and, and perspective and, uh, I guess, agency. Um, you are listening to Sundays on the East End, uh, 88.3. You could also hear us at 883wppb.org. I'm here with uh, Delaney Hafner, our producer. And when we come back, uh, we'll start our conversation with Talia.
Okay, we are back. Sunday's on the East End uh, with Alex Oclo and my partner in crime, Bridget Leroy, who is not here at the moment. Uh, very uh, excited and, and uh, intrigued to uh, welcome Talia Carner uh, to our show. Um, to give just a little bona fides, uh, you know, Talia is a proud, I'm reading from her website here, so proud seventh generation Sabra which, uh, if you don't know, uh, is a word used for people, uh, Israel, uh, Jews born in Israel. Uh, seven generation kind of goes back several 1794. Amazing. Amazing. Um, she's a New York-based author, uh, has written a series of psychological suspense novels. Uh, but uh, prior to that, and with that, she's a committed supporter of global human rights, uh, has worked in publishing at Red Book, uh, published a, a magazine named Savvy Woman, uh, has also been an adjunct professor at Long Island University. Having been an adjunct myself, I know that there's no money in that, but you get to be called professor, so that's awesome. Uh, then uh, has also uh, been a marketing consultant for uh, various Fortune 500 co uh, companies and uh, has uh, spoken at the UN uh, and traveled the world uh, giving keynote speeches about women's rights and human rights and the issues around justice and uh, equality, I guess. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on your show. Oh, absolutely. How are you today? I'm great. Another morning in Bridgehampton. Yeah, isn't that great? Oh, we're coming from the Bridgehampton Inn. I know Bridget's so good at, like, the business side. Uh, we're at the Bridgehampton Inn, uh, which is a magnificent institution in Bridgehampton, although institution almost makes it sound cold. It's warm, it's lovely, it's delicious breakfast, it's inviting, and uh, I highly recommend everybody come in here at some point and just check it out. Yeah, um, it's lovely to see the traditional touch rather than all con contemporary. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, how did you end up in Long Island? I arrived in the United States over 40 years ago, and at that time I went to Stony Brook for my master's, deg master's degree in economics. Okay. I met my husband, and the rest is history. Okay. <laughs> and so with Stony Brook, and, and uh, I think I read on your bio, you split time between Florida and New York City and Long recently, Island. Recently, since my husband retired, and he's an outdoor guy, couldn't take the winters in New York anymore. Yeah. While I'm always inside, I write, I edit, I research. And when I exercise, I go to the gym inside. I don't bike outside. So anyway, that's a new addition. The last four years, yeah. we, we go to Florida for just the winter, like December, mid-December through early April. And, and where, but do you otherwise, do, do you do Bridgehampton is my uh, main residence. Oh, fantastic. And do you do your writing out here? I do my writing anywhere that they leave me alone, yes. That's so funny. You know, I, so I, I write out here. Um, I have toggled between libraries, my house. Uh, for a, a while, I wrote at the Spur in Southampton. Uh, for me, it almost is about the project I'm working on. I get into a certain headspace, a certain energy, and I find a certain place that somehow I'm able to channel what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I have a beautiful office, so I enjoy sitting there and looking at the swans. Nice. In Mickox Bay, so I'm fine. Yeah, nice. And um, were you always a writer? I always wrote well. 
in whichever language it was, because right. English is my third language. How many languages do you speak? Hebrew is my native language. I went to a French high school, actually. Okay. So as a romantic teenager, I wrote poetry in French. And uh, I knew English already. I was conversational, not nearly as good as this. But then uh, I improved it. When I came to the United States, I made English my right. main language. And I was very good at writing industry overviews and marketing plans and excellent sales letters. So I always wrote well. I just never thought of channeling that into fiction because I had a glorious career in marketing, magazine publishing and advertising, which for me was one career. It sounds like three different ones. Right. So, it, so can, can you maybe career. extrapolate on that a little bit? I, I got into the advertising field and went into advertising sales. I worked for Red Book Magazine on the business side, moved into marketing. At that time, I hit the glass ceiling and cracked it with my own head. Yeah, let's and, talk about the glass ceiling also. Yes, that's I'm a, definitely, I, and then when I became the publisher of Savvy Magazine, I was one of only three or four women of the top 200 magazines in the United States. And as you hear with my accent, I was not even a Native American. It shook the entire industry, the entire magazine industry from Time Inc. to Hearst, of course, because they were not promoting women. And here my clients moved me up from being a low-level right. manager to being running and, one of the and, major magazines in the country. And what... If you can go back to the real time moments, what were the challenges of that glass ceiling on a on a like pragmatic level? You know, you you hear about it conceptually, but how did that play out? It never, as a as a woman in uh, at Hearst magazines. First of all, I never got any support that guys got. So men, where they would get themselves a new apprentice and they would steal my presentation so that he could present it to the management so he can pass and be promoted over me. And they did it totally blatantly. Yeah. Sexual harassment today would be unacceptable, but they cherished our manager who had been a low, I don't know what you call it, uh, <sighs> junior league baseball player and they all thought that therefore we the women must admire him as much as they did in that men's club so when he was harassing me sexually they thought that i probably was welcoming it so right and so and when that's, so it was uh, right, just so, that this but, is the 80s and when i finally told them I, I hung a photo on my wall of my children and my boss said are these your nieces and I said, they are my daughters. He said, we don't hire women with children. I said, I know, that's why I didn't tell you. But that time I was number one salesperson in the, com in the company. They are one of the only two women in the sales force out of 20. So it was just constantly right. yeah, so my, my, against it. My, my mother had a very huge career in the 70s working for Warner Brothers where she started off and, and kind of rose up and hit that glass ceiling. And I, so I grew up in a household where I would hear some of these stories um, and some of these moments. And um, I know when I've heard her talk very similarly, uh, a lot of 
her initiatives were stolen or taken for other people's uh, careers, mm-hmm. uh, and that there was also this basic um, overriding sense of, of patronizing. You oh, know? yes. So that was the 70s was probably even a lot worse than my experiences in the mid-80s. But um, at any rate, I did uh, take my marbles and started my own game, right. which was to establish a marketing consulting company to reach the top of the pyramid of the women's market, which nobody had, nobody was able to do it. And advertisers flocked to my company. And why do you think that was? Because they needed the market and nobody was actually, nobody really understood it. All those guys didn't really understand what they were doing. Right. So I created a marketing company and I was able to reach the women, lawyers, accountants, engineers, real estate, bankers. And uh, I did this through their uh, professional organizations. And I created a, um, an advertising inserts that went into their magazines. And I pitted my network against Fortune, Forbes, and Business Week, which had all-male readership. Now I was bringing pure, upscale, top-of-the-pyramid women's market in advertising. And with that, I tied in tremendous amount of marketing. And after a while, it was even more lucrative for everybody involved and for the women's organizations to do marketing programs I had AT&T at that time give them telemarketing workshops at their conferences. And I had clients like TWA beginning to understand the travel women's market through research that I did for them. For Marriott, uh, Marriott hotels, I got a spokeswoman, actually, to do various promotions to go out to the media and to also talk to them about women travelers so that we could understand the women's business travelers, which was different uh, in the sense that, for example, women usually tied in a um, weekend at the top of their conference and they would stay for the weekend. Right. So so X or Y chromosome, the money's green and and the money moves. So anyway, I was able to to do all kind of uh, programs for IBM. They they were promoting at that time. Word processors was getting in. It was very big. It's hard for people to to understand that there was a world without word word processors. But they were promoting them to CEOs. And I said, you should be talking to the office managers. You right. should be talking to the entrepreneurs. What, what are you talking about the CEO? Does he care if the, who's typing one in one machine or another? Right. So, so it's, it's a bit of common sense, but it's also a voice at the table that had not been at the table. Right. So now they all, there was not a single consumer product company that did not use my services within uh, those nine years that I was running and, it. And growing up, like, w- did you always have this? Um, I, I would say it's 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 a bit of a fighting approach of like I am not going to accept the status quo if I know I'm right. Not quite this way. Okay. I just if I saw something that I could do, which is what's happening today in activism, I get an opportunity to do something then I do it. I, I don't go around searching for it. Right. 
So that's what what's happening. I don't know if I had a fighting fighting spirit well, just for the sake of fighting, but... Well, I, I don't mean it for but the sake. I just sake, mean like, because what, what you're if describing... If I saw something that had to be done, I just went ahead and did it. Yeah, no, I, but like I... I had you know, it from my mother. My mother. I was going to say, like and my and and we're we're going to pivot a little bit into your into your writing and your storytelling. Um, I, you know, grew up in a in a Jewish household in in Manhattan. Uh, one of the things I love about Jewish culture is the strength of of women and the strength of of women throughout the the calendar year, throughout the stories, throughout the 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 culture. So, I am I am drawn to those kind of reaffirmation stories, even though I also know, uh, and uh, this is not uh, poking at anybody, but like, you know, all belief systems and all group thinks when you go to the more radical places get uh, less uh, identifiable to me. And when they're in the kind of centrist place, I f fully understand them. So, but like, it's not a surprise to me that, that your, your personal narrative takes you from Israel to New York to the world of publishing, to the world of, of uh, Fortune 500 companies. Um, and, and then you make this kind of leap into activism and into, like you said, seeing an issue and, and running towards it, not just accepting it um, as a status quo. Uh, we're kind of coming close to uh, a break. This might be a good place to maybe have another interlude. And when we come back, uh, I would love to talk about your activism and your... Uh, your, your good works around the world, which... Uh, and my writing. W and believe me, we're getting to it. Everything's about s storytelling. So um, thank you. You're listening to uh, Sundays on the East End. Uh, this is Alex Sokolow. Bridget Leroy is uh, off on a vision quest, I think. Uh, we are at 88.3 uh, WPPB. And uh, we'll be back in a second. Funding for WPPB comes from The Independence, presenting Tabling Time, a new storytelling dinner series, 7 p.m. every Thursday in October at Rosie's in Amagansett, featuring weekly special guests sharing topics such as birth, wisdom, love, sacrifice, and death. The evening includes a locally sourced three-course dinner and a chance to share your own stories as well. Tickets and information are on The Independent Newspaper's Facebook page. Hi, everybody. We are back. Sunday's on the East End. This is Alex Sokolow. Uh, Bridget Leroy is uh, not here this week. Um, we are talking with uh, Talia Carner, uh, who uh, has worn so many hats in her life. Uh, the, the, the most recent one, which is kind of tied to, to, to her activism, is, is her writing and, and is the, 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 the novel she's written. Uh, the latest novel, uh, the third daughter just came out. Uh, there are book signings. She's on a, uh, a I guess, are, are you on a book tour? Oh, yes. Yeah, so on a book tour, uh, putting it out there. Uh, let's talk about the third daughter. How did uh, this idea spark inside of you? There are two or three sources for this particular novel. And as you described earlier, it's a story of a young woman in the late 1800s who is lured out of Russia with a false promise of marriage and in South America. And when she arrives in Buenos Aires, she's forced into prostitution instead, which turns out that was there was a legal union of traffickers that operated with impunity for 70 years and subjugated 
lured those women, uh, I estimate 150,000 wow. or more Jewish girls and women over those 70 years. And that was legal. And they end up owning them the way in previously in the United States, black uh, were owned by the whites. Right. And if uh, a slave would run away to the police, the police would return him or her back because they were property. So were these women after they were kidnapped were considered. So how did I get to it? Very interesting, through Fiddler on the Roof, no less. Have you seen the Yiddish uh, production? Not the Yiddish, I don't speak Yiddish, but I uh, know the story very well. Yeah. And growing up in Israel, I always knew this, that it was Tevye and his seven daughters. That was the original. And uh, I was wondering one day, <clears throat> what happened to, since Fiddler on the Roof tells the story of three daughters, leave the stage with two more unmarried daughters, what happened to the others? And I got myself a the story collection, which I found the stories were in one collection called the Railroad Stories, told by Sholom Aleichem as if he were traveling on the train in Russia and different characters come on, on board a train and tell him in monologue mostly their stories. And as they, Tevye comes in and says, oh, let Mr. Arthur, you're here again. Let me tell you what happened to my next daughter. And that's how the stories evolve. But the first time he says, I have seven daughters, the second time, then he says, I have six daughters, ends up telling the stories of only five. In that same story collection, as I'm leafing through, I come across a short story called The Men from Buenos Aires. And unlike the very warm character of the lay philosopher Tevye that we all like, this Man from Buenos Aires is a sleazy character who keeps on talking about his riches and successes in Buenos Aires. Now he's traveling in Russia to try to find, go to uh, one of his, the Jewish communities, Yiddish speaking, to find a bride, a virtuous bride. And the author keeps asking, but what's the merchandise you're talking about? And he says, ha, 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 merchandise that everybody wants and nobody talks about, and I have the police in the back pocket, and so on. And he never and, reveals. And you're, you're reading this. I'm reading this story, and I know what he's talking about. I know he's talking about sex trafficking because I had been aware of the fact that there was something had gone on in South America about it. And uh, that takes me back to 2007, a brief visit at, in Buenos Aires at, at the library, the Jewish library at the time. And I was talking in English to the librarian. And then I said, what's the story about these prostitutes and pimps here in Buenos Aires? And suddenly she forgot her English. So I knew so, I stumbled. So it was still upon. living so this inside is back, of her. This is back 2007. So now I'm reading this story in 2015, and I knew what was it about. So I left, put down the book, and went to modern day Google because the story had been written in 1909. I, within 10 minutes, I was printing out mountains of articles about this legal sex trafficking union, which I now know the name was Zvi Migdal, Z-W-I-M-I-G-D-A-L. I could not believe how much material there was. 
nothing in fiction. It's kind of like hiding in plain sight. Yes, but there have been books, there have been conferences. Eventually, when I did my research, I used PhD dissertations that were very thorough. So the information was out there. And um, so that's one source, or the second source being the librarian in uh, Buenos Aires. And the third source was going back to 1995 International Women's Conference in Beijing when I was first introduced to the sub- subject. No, let's talk about just subjugation. So, so this kind of trips into your activism a little so, bit. So, so immediately, yes. Yeah, so by that time, I was already attending at the UN at uh, various meetings about sex trafficking, just because I was interested. Yeah. No, you know. So I, was, I, I, I never thought I was going to become an activist on that subject, but when I read this and when I found out the extent of this chapter in history, I did not even hesitate. I yeah. just sat down and started to write what happened to Tevye and his wife after they leave the stage wow. and they meet the men from Buenos Aires. And I had to eventually, through the editing, to cut on all the extra sisters because we don't need the stories of all the sisters. So is, and that's why it's only the third daughter. Is the third daughter, daughter really Tevye's? Yeah, daughter? I, yeah, I just changed that. the names. I just changed the names. You know, so, so when you read so the first I, two chapters, you recognize I, the characters. I went... I channeled you know, Sholem Aleichem's I voice. went and saw the Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof with my mom and, and my girlfriend. And my girlfriend, Dana, uh, was actually saying at the very end when they're leaving that that youngest daughter who um, uh, is doesn't really have too many lines in the course of the production, but is going to leave with them to come to America... Afterwards, uh, Dana says to me, uh, that's all of our grandmothers. You know, that's the young seven-year-old that showed up in the Lower East Side and began the American experience. And if it, they got to America, they, they just didn't America. have money. I mean, how could they get to America? So that wow, was not the, an easy thing. And that's what the, the how the book starts. And, wow. And from that point on, they meet the men from Buenos Aires, and they are lured to let the, their daughter go with him. Yeah. Not knowing, and that's totally, you recognize, Tevi, I had to change the names only because I cut on so many daughters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, when you begin your writing process, do you have a destination story-wise in your mind, or do you have more, uh, you're just an exploration of an arena, and it will reveal itself? Yeah, the latter, definitely. You've heard the expression, or the uh, analogy that writing fiction for me, and I know it's true for me and many authors, not all, is like leaving New York on a dark night. You know you want to get to California, but you can only see as far as the headlights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is how I write my books. As I'm saying, it's not true for everybody. I have a friend, a major, major a novelist who sells millions of copies and he outlines a 60-page outline of a book before he begins to write it and it takes him only a year, a year and a half to write it. It takes me four or five years to write a book. Yeah, well, everybody so, has their own process. I mean, I get yeah, I, I It's different and I'm not... I toil in the field of screenplays and I uh, have found in my own way I can only... Uh, front load the process so much without it getting flattened for me. And I really enjoy 
that angsty sense of where is this going, knowing in the case of screenplays that they're much more formulaic and that you're ultimately going to be on the rails by the time you get to the third act. Right. You, know. you you have to know every minute, you calculate every minute what happens not to have anything yeah. that doesn't belong. I eventually get to that same spot, but the, in my earlier part of writing, this is my fifth novel. Yes, and, and your my, other four novels also, uh, I think, from, from what I've read, have a similar genesis where you find something, it lives inside of you, and then you have to kind of channel it and get it out. Correct. What intrigues me is how the forces that shape our lives work together and how the human spirit rises above them. And I'm referring to forces such as the psychological, religious, societal, economic, political, geographical if we are mountain people or if we are ocean people, that affects the characters. Putting all of this together create a certain, a certain pressure cooker of events that my protagonist now finds herself in, trapped and then, and then finds her and way then, out. And she finds the tango. In my, yeah, right. So, but yeah, this character who is again an invented name, means daughter of God. She always keeps her religious beliefs, which is very interesting. And she becomes a dan tango dancer. She's still a prostitute. But during the time that I was doing my research, I realized that at the same time in late 1800s in Buenos Aires was the time that tango was developed in the brothels of Buenos Aires. Wow. So it was very natural for her to pick that and become a tango dancer. I also would think that just there's, there's raised something... her value as a prostitute for her. Right, and her. well, our, you know, well, there's a couple things here. One is I would think that the empowerment of dance and tango would be an interesting thing to play with for her character and for anybody that that she gets to be completely in charge, even if it doesn't seem that way. Uh, to the, the uninitiated eye. The second thing is, and this is something that, you know, I, I co-produced a, a documentary several years back called I Am Jane Doe on sex trafficking in the United States. And uh, I, I, without parsing words here, I find that among the things that I was not comfortable with was even the, the term prostitute for somebody who's forced into that world. Because uh, to me, it, maybe this is like just, again, parsing things, these are people who were trafficked and they were enslaved. And so uh, they didn't want to be there. They didn't, the transaction was not benefiting them in some uh, organic way that they decided. It was thrust upon them. So it's really about survival. And they, were, and they were not taking the profits. It's a third party. And that's what takes me into activism. When we begin, these uh, for these women, and I must say it's mostly women. They are also boys and, and trans, but mostly 99% are women and they are victims. Two thirds of them are being brought from abroad in the United, into the United States and one third are US born and that they have a somewhat of a different characteristics. The ones who are brought in usually lured by false pretense, false promises the same way that 
my character in the third daughter is being lord was lord 120 years ago so the methods have not changed which is amazing but the ones who are born in the united states are entering by meeting somebody and guess what's the entry age in the u.s it's 12 to 14 yeah, years well, old. Yeah, I know that from, the, from my dad. Yes, yeah, yeah, so, so we are talking about children who are still in school. They're under our control. Yeah. Uh, they can be reached. They are reached at home now through the Internet. But basically, we are dealing with children who are vulnerable already, either because of social isolation or families' tragedies or they are already have sexual molestation and rape in their childhood. Childhood, so we are dealing with that population that the transition to prostitution that is being trafficked by a third party is not the worst thing that have, has happened to them already. Now, once we begin to understand that these are victims, we are going to the formula as an economist by profession, because this is what my background is, is statistics and, and economics. If we look at the whole market as supply, suppliers, and demand, supplies, supply would be enormous as long as there's misery around the world, wars, strife in other countries, people want to come to the United States, and as long as we have a vulnerable population in the United States, the um, foster care system in our in, in the United States is a direct pipeline into prostitution, for example. We need to do a much, much better job there. But so that's a supply side. The suppliers are the procurers, and as long as they, they stand to make a huge profits and we do not punish them enough, then the risk is definitely worth it. It's the demand side are the men who buy sex. And there's no two ways about it. And they are the ones who victimize because they commit the act. If they begin to understand that these women, in spite of their behavior, in spite of the way they dress and they speak and they solicit, that they are not doing this out of their own free will, that there's somebody who's forcing them to act this way, that threatens that if they are from another country, something bad is going to happen to the family back elsewhere. Or in the United States, that the money doesn't go to that person that they are now raping. We can lower the demand. And we see that, for example, now in sports arena, we see when, of course, there's a spike in the demand. And then the, uh, when in a big sporting event, you have then the traffickers fly in with their merchandise. We see now players do public announcements explaining that. Right, but, but we see and, and this is, so we believe begin to to teach. Yeah, so that's one thing of. I know, and and I actually we're going to take a little break here because it's time. But I want to come back and talk about this because I think the demand conversation doesn't get a proper airing, and I actually, uh, in my own uh, experience and and education into this arena, believe that we're actually talking about. Uh, if you will, um, creation myths, and we're talking about the very way that men uh, are raised from the time that they are uh, babies and born, uh, of, of what incentivizes their behavior. Uh, but that's after our break. Uh, you are listening to Sundays on the East End, uh, here talking with Talia 
Karner. I'm really bad at names, and so forgive me if I mispronounce that. 88.3 WPPB.org. You can listen to us at 883 WPPB. Don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is I never left you. All through my wild days, my mad existence, I kept my promise. Don't keep your distance. Okay, we are back. Sunday's on the East End. This is Alex Sokolo. Uh, Bridget Leroy is uh, away uh, seeking, um, I guess, a higher state of being. Um, or something. Um, talking with Talia Carner, uh, a novelist, uh, five times over, her latest book, The Third Daughter, uh, just uh, hit the bookshelves, but she's also uh, published and, and written uh, Pub- uh, Puppet Child, China Doll, Jerusalem Maiden, and Hotel Moscow. Uh, all books, I believe, kind of share a, a certain um, uh, theme about uh, women, uh, the, the, the strength of the individual in a world that uh, seems to almost have been designed to keep women down. Uh, let's talk about writing. So why novels? It's interesting that I mentioned before that I always wrote well in terms of prose and material that's organized. I also was a good storyteller. And when my children were growing up, I did not your, read- Your nieces, <laughs> your children. <Yes. laughs> I did not read books to them as I made up stories at bedtime. And I created different characters. And on each of those characters, over the years, I invented hundreds of stories. I never thought of recording myself. But every night I would go on and tell them stories about those characters. The one was the mischievous monkey and one was the three little kittens. So whatever was... And, and, and I, I know that that's uh, uh, Treasure Island kind of came from a similar place, as did Pippi Longstocking, uh, yeah. which is just people telling stories to, to kids in the room. Possible, possible. I didn't, yeah. I didn't explore that. But one day when I, uh, I was in Russia oh. in 1993, twice teaching women business skills after the fall of communism, entrepreneurship workshops and so on when I was caught in the uprising of the Russian parliament against Boris Yeltsin in October 93. I was on the run from the militia and uh, was rescued. When you say you were caught up in it, you mean just by physically being there? Yeah, yes, sweeping the hotel and uh, I was playing Scrabble and it's a whole big story that you need to read Hotel Moscow because I ended up using that la- that scene at the end of the book. So how ex- what was happening was insane. So I fled Russia and um, at, at that point the adv- the I'm sorry the American embassy had closed for three days and they were hiding in the basement without a change of underwear when. Luckily, the uprising was quelled, and uh, I found my way to the American embassy. I was uh, actually had been sent by the U.S. Information Agency. So they whisked me out of the country on the first flight in the morning. They got my luggage out of the hotel first. So anyway, I sat down and started to write a novel about it, 
And I only found out much later after I'd written a 640 page draft and started taking writing courses that I met journalists who say, oh, they've been writing, have been journalists for 20 years and one day they're gonna try to write a novel. And I didn't know that it took so much, for them it took courage, for me, turns out it was a natural format. I think in a in horizontal way, I mentioned before the forces that shape our lives, whether it's psychological, political, economic, whatever it is, the issue of the day, but all of the other issues control us even in the background. I think in this horizontal way and with those forces in play, my story then move vertically. That's a natural thing for me to write. I cannot find poetry, English language poetry, particularly interesting or understandable. I need 100,000 words to describe an idea. So for me, just writing fiction, novels is the top priority. It's the natural. And do you write in English? Oh, yes. I write and think in English. I only started writing short stories at those workshops that I started to take after I was already writing my first and second and then even even probably into my third novel, I still took workshops and uh, attended writers' conferences and continued to learn the craft. That's when I wrote short stories. I also found the personal essays to be a, a great medium for me, so I wrote many and published many, but those came later not as my you started you started with the long form fiction yeah yeah with yeah with book length fiction and i stay with it now i'm working on my sixth novel which will be four or five years in the making and do you do you um i know this is like such a generic question but like do you when you when you're conceiving of your main character uh, in time and place do you do you put yourself into that character emotionally um, or are you uh, almost like uh, an entomologist where you're kind of like uh, looking down at the character and just... I'm glad you're asking this question because I hear from many authors that they are in in their characters, not all, but I am not in any of my characters whatsoever. Not at all. Each character, she, she completely stands on her own as an outside person. What I bring in is my emotions. I bring my sympathy, I bring my compassion, and I bring my curiosity to see how she would react under certain circumstances. And I I watch her from the outside. Jerusalem Maiden, it was interesting because one day I uh, didn't even expect it, but It was the year 1924, and my protagonist ran off to Paris. And I had absolutely, until I wrote the line, she was going to send her husband a letter giving it to the shipping office at that time. That's how you send out mail. And he was in Europe. And when she went to the shipping office, office and she bought herself a passage on the boat. And until I wrote this line, I didn't know. And did, did her luggage get there? 
And I so well, you buy a message, <laughs> you have time to go home and pack. Yeah. And uh, I, I go, I said to my husband, Esther ran off to Paris. I have no idea what she's doing there. I must wow. follow her and find out. Now, I mentioned that I went to a French high school. My French was really rusty at that point, but I know I would have to spend time in libraries. So I had three weeks to brush up my French. I literally read a dictionary in order to get back words. And I ran off to Paris and started walking the streets to try to figure out. I stripped the streets of anything that had happened since 1924. For example, gas lights and, of course, traffic. And, and they cleaned the buildings at that time. In, in 1924, this is during the avant-garde era. And she turns out had, she had already been an artist. so. So it was so easy to just see what happened to her and how things evolved in the whole story. So you put boots on the ground yourself. Yes, I mean. and I walked around and followed her. And it's amazing. I don't want to give out the story, but it's uh, amazing the things that happened to her. And every time the reader is surprised, I'm surprised. And definitely in The Third Daughter, I didn't know what was going to happen to her. I knew the general idea. I knew that these girls, they're... Yeah, well, were, I don't want any spoiler alerts, but I think what you said before is that her, her, the human spirit inside of her conquers. That's very attractive to me because mm -hmm. that I can relate to that, whether I know the particulars of a story. So, uh, and have you tried? Has that borne out on all five of your books? Yes. The only one I would say in, in Hotel Moscow, I knew that scene at the end, which is while the way I fled Russia. So I used that. That was the only time I actually knew the ending, but I didn't know how it led to that moment because in in reality, you know, the real world is, has to be, may have a lot of unbelievable things, but in fiction, fiction has to be believable. So you have to write a book that doesn't strain the reader's uh, believability ability to to trust you that what you're telling her is correct and is is plausible so right well again i'm 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 cutting to the very last line of your of of third daughter and it's yes she whispered yes so that even implies that she sees a better moment for herself, yes and i tell you most many of my novels have two endings I, I mean i'm thinking about this in jerusalem maiden that has an epilogue and i have to, i think probably china doll has an epilogue so in that respect there are two endings there's an ending and then there's an epilogue of something that happens a few years later or oh few yeah months. yeah and, and, and that and, is the second ending yeah and uh that gives and, the reader and four, even another three or four generations later there's a kid that's writing like Hollywood movies and there's a kid that's doing whatever and they're in America or, or, or not, <laughs> you know, like that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So they, uh, so then there is, uh, it's more redemptive, uh, especially for the third daughter. That is a difficult book. I don't write easy books. I, I write books that gets your kishkes turning. It's a serious fiction. Right. But it's and, a right, journey well, but that this, you, but this actually you get begs, on the road. This begs the question. Uh, when you are writing, do you see the readership you're trying to write for, or are you writing more internally to sa satisfy something inside of you? I write what I consider intelligent women's fiction. Okay. So I write it for myself, in okay. a way. But I you, write books you'd want to read. I, 
a book that will interest me, that yeah. will captivate me. You know the great feeling, and it happens in films and movies too. When you leave the movie or you leave the book, and a day later, and a two days later, later you still think about it. The character is with you. I had uh, a, a friend said to me, I met your character. I saw her sitting on the subway. I she was on the on the subway and she saw a woman. She said, "That's the character I just left behind." That kind of feeling—it's a great feeling and it gives a tremendous amount of satisfaction. And that is what I think readers look for. And or when I I love movies, I go to the films that you produce, and I get this satisfaction. And that's when you leave and you feel good. Right. Even if it's a hard film, even if it's a book that you go on a difficult journey, but you're so involved that here is the challenge that I find. In a way, it's similar to a comedian. A comedian has to to grab the audience in the laughter in the first 30 seconds and then continue to ratchet it up, but they have to let go for a second, to split second to, to let the audience catch the breath before they take them up to the next level, right? I have the same challenge. I get the audience, I have to get the reader in the first paragraph, page, chapter, whichever, because I don't know when she's going to fall asleep and put the book for the night. So every moment has to be very as a kind that has tension. And uh, Stephen King is a fabulous, he has a good book about how to create tension. So, but I don't know where she's going to put my book down. Yeah. In the morning, she goes on her, her day and she is maybe she fights with her mother and she has a terrible boss and the nurse calls her from school that the kid had a gash on his chin and now he needs a few stitches and her car stalls. And all she wants thinks throughout all of this is what happened? I wanna go back to that book. And at night she finally falls into bed and she picks it up because she wants to and that challenge that I have when writing a book is that no matter what, the reader gets back to it. Yeah. And uh, that's a, a challenge, and it's a challenge for all fiction writers because we, our books are long. It's not a movie that you sit there for maybe a hundred right, minutes. It, but even, even whether it's a, a, a movie or, or a novel, you're asking people for their time and you're asking people for their imagination. And you have to reward them. You yeah. can't play with them. You can't. You you take them on a ride with a, a journey with the protagonist, but you can't play with their emotions by giving them. I just read a major bestseller, and I don't want to name it because I thought that the there is a lot. No, uh, okay. there is a lot of the end is not told, and uh, I thought that was a tremendous amount of playing with a reader by. Cutting it too short before okay. the end. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, um, we are uh, we're kind of running out of time. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Because we've touched on so many areas. Uh, anything about your writing? Anything about where you're putting your energy now? Uh, or uh, you know. Well, these are about four questions, so I'll I'll answer briefly. Okay. My energy is spent. I have tremendous amount of amount of speaking engagements. 
my last novel, Hotel Moscow, was it was almost four years of a book tour because wow. I keep on getting invited to speak at uh, a keynote events. I don't do readings. So I do that all the time and I will continue. The What I want the readers to take out of this novel is the humanity of a woman who is being trafficked. So that when we begin to understand and like her and be compassionate towards what happened to her and are willing then, then to help her come out of it. Once we understand that she is human and she had not meant she had just been unlucky to fall into that trap, we find our way into local activism. And on my website, which is www.taliacarna.com, T-A-L-I-A-C-A-R-N, as in N-C-E-R.com, you find a page on activism. What can you do to fight sex trafficking in your own backyard? And in every community, unfortunately, it exists. And in every community, there are opportunities to help. I'm in touch with over 20 organizations. You'll find links to many, many more right on my website, and you'll find ways that you can help people get out of that misery uh, of existence and exploitation. All right, well, that's a fantastic place to close our conversation. Um, I do know that uh, you are not what happens to you, and there's a big separation of that, that, that whatever happens to somebody is not who they are, uh, and that the human spirit is magnificent. Uh, when uh, it can rise above that concept. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, Talia. And thank you very much, Alec, yeah, for Yeah, really, really amazing me. conversation. And Delaney, thank you. And Bridget, please, please come back. Uh, I, I am pathetic without you. Um, you've been listening to Sundays on the East End, uh, 88.3 WPPB. Everybody have a great week. Uh, read The Third Daughter. Think about how you can be on the positive side of humanity in our troubled times. I would times. like to say the book Hampton carries. Book Hampton? Carries please. the book. There you go. So let's get out to Book Hampton and, uh, or go to, go to Talia's website, taliacarner.com, uh, and uh, use your energy uh, to hopefully make the world slightly better. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, be well and stay well. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match Find me a find, catch me a catch Matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book And make me a perfect match Matchmaker, matchmaker, I'll bring the veil You bring the groom, slender and pale Bring me a ring, for I'm longing to be the envy of all I see. For Papa, make him a scholar. For Mama, make him rich as a king. For me, well, I wouldn't holler if he were as handsome as anything. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. Night after night in the dark, I'm alone. 